0: Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up DTC pod today we're joined by Jesse Puji, who is the founder and CEO of Kahani. So Jesse, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're building with Kahani and then we can kind of jump backwards in time and talk about your past as well.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So the best way to think about Kahani is ask the question, if Shopify or Squarespace or any of the big e-com website builders were to build today, what would they use? would they use a website? Our answer is no. We think that what they would use is something that looks a lot more like TikTok and Instagram. Uh, and so that's what we're building with Kahani. We, the vision is in three or five years, you won't go to a URL where you'll start scrolling and tapping around. You'll land on a, a video or really a, a picture that sort of takes over your phone. And from there, you'll start to kind of swipe, tap and use all the mobile features and that, that we're used to using in apps. You'll use those on an e-com URL. Uh, that's kind of the big vision. You know, the, the first product we launched is really, we, we, that's like the crazy vision. So we, we're like, we can't just start telling econ people to do that. They'll, they'll laugh at us. Let's find something that that's kind of uh, everybody gets and everybody's familiar with. So we launched kind of the stories functionality. So we have that sort of nav bar at the top. You can tap on those circles. And inside of that, you'll have video picture exactly like you're on Snapchat or Instagram stories. Uh, and we've seen it have a pretty tremendous lift and impact on the websites that that were our private beta customers. So that's kind of Kahani in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really exciting as you just think about like a form factor and the way people interact with different sites, right? Like mobile isn't I think one thing that was like really exciting about when Instagram, TikTok, all these platforms popped up, like their their experience and their user interface for the way people actually want to consume content is so much more engaging than like mobile websites. Um that like you were saying, just have like these busted like hamburger menus. And it's So it's always like an afterthought to the um the the web experience whereas the way instagram and tiktok and these other platforms they design like are truly mobile first uh experience so that's kind of what you guys are are being able and to we, tap we, into we're the coming order, up with this right? idea
1: you know we, I, we've been ideating a lot of different things um and and so we want to validate that these are good ideas but one of the things we did was you know have websites even changed in 10 years and i kid you not we went back to the wayback machine we started looking at like e-com websites and they literally look exactly the same. Maybe the pictures are a little bit bigger. There's certain small things, but generally speaking, the experience hasn't changed in 10 years, which sort of blew our mind.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it, it just gets me thinking it's like being able to provide that as a service is obviously great for the mobile shopping experience, but I'm sure even down the line, we don't need to get too ahead of ourselves. It's like being able to provide different sorts of engaging experiences across any device, right? Is that something you, you you've thought about as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one day, right. I think you got, I'm, I'm one of those, uh, I always say entrepreneurship is like a video game. You know, you, you got to beat the boss on level one before you get to level two. You know, I don't know if you're a big gamer, but as a kid, you would put the cheat code in, you'd go to level five and you'd get crushed because even if you could cheat your way to level five, you didn't even know what to do at level five because you had to have beaten level three and level four to, to figure it out. So I think the same is true for building businesses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just think it's always fun to like when you're ideating in a space right and when you're pursuing a business you have also always want to have like the idea like down the line like where can this go? So I think it's really exciting to, you know, just have some of those considerations and obviously like as you beat boss 1, 2 and 3 stuff is going to change, but it's always cool to keep that stuff in mind. So, why don't we go a little bit backwards in time to, um, the start of your career, right? Like you've, you've obviously been in the space for a little while. So for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with you, why don't you give us a little bit of of background about yourself in terms of how you got into the space of, um, you know, well now you're in SaaS, but as well as e-commerce, advertising, performance marketing, everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up, I was born and raised in St. Louis. You know, my dad was a small business entrepreneur so kind of had entrepreneurship in my DNA you know, learned it as a kid. Uh, I had a DJing company in high school, had a t-shirt business in college. So kind of all like, you know, check the box of a, of a kid who wants to be an entrepreneur one day. And I spent a little bit of time uh, in, in, you know, in consulting, management consulting, and then a little bit of time on wall street. Uh, and I actually, I joined Goldman Sachs three months before Lehman filed for bankruptcy. So I was there during the craziest period you could imagine to be working at Goldman. Uh, and then you know, after a couple of years there, I just, my heart wasn't in. I wanted to be an entrepreneur and, and I'd always told myself if, if I love those jobs and I'm, I'm in the top 5%, I will stick with them. But if not, then I think I want to be an entrepreneur. So, so I sort of built this career up and then, um, you know, kind of on a dime moved to San Francisco in 2010 and said, I'm going to build a business and, and, and talk to friends and mentors. They're like, Oh, you're good with numbers, data, like go look at digital marketing, go look at online advertising and we started poking around and, and there's a longer backstory, which, which I could tell you if you're curious, but we, the long story short was that was right on the time Facebook launched their self-serve ad platform and we started playing around with, with Facebook and next thing you know, it was, it was performing for us and some kind of performance marketing clients we had and we took that and, and next thing you know, we got a call from Facebook about 15 months in, in 2011 saying, who the hell are you guys? You're one of our top 100 global advertisers and then we became one of their earliest marketing partners. So we had access to their API. We built software on top of their API and eventually Twitter, Pinterest and our early clients and customers were companies like there was a bunch of companies that kind of fizzled out or startups that didn't work out. And then there was, you know, Uber, clash of clans, Birchbox, dollar shave club, Peloton, blue apron. And so we just, we grew and scaled that business. <clears throat> we had a liquidity event in like late 2015, early 2016. Um, and I continue to run the business through 2020 and then in 2020 transitioned out as CEO, I continue to be on the board and, uh, and yeah, and, and then kind of got gateway X up and running and then that's led to Kahani getting going. So that's kind of the quick backstory.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's really exciting because you've seen a couple of these like transformational times, right? I think the, the experience you have putting together Ampush is really exciting because, you guys were at the forefront of Facebook and this was a time before anyone was advertising there. Right? So you were coming from the lens of performance marketing and you were being able to provide a service to now what are like major, major household brands that even they weren't able to do just because you, was it like sort of like right place, right time. And you understood there yeah. was like a massive ad arbitrage opportunity for them.
1: Yeah. I think we were just, I mean, there was a good three years where we were probably one of five companies who could make direct response work on Facebook. And so we actually had a line. Our hardest thing was hiring and training fast enough to be able to build a business up and build it out. Um, but yeah, we were, we, we saw also lots of waves. We saw the, the daily deals wave. Then we saw the like mobile gaming wave. <laughs> then we saw the meal kit wave. And we were watch, like watching each of these waves take place. Uh, but yeah, we were, we were super early to it and able to, to kind of build up the performance marketing. And you know, I, I spent my year, uh, my first two years out of college at McKinsey, and a lot of what we built was based on what I had. Like, those was one of the only jobs I'd ever had. So I was like, all right, well, this is how they work with clients. Okay, let's, what's, the, what's the performance marketing version of that? And so we now have a lot of alums out there that are, you know, running growth at a lot of brands because we've been able to, like, we were able to really create a big talent uh, training opportunity. We've hired, Ampush has probably hired over 200 people out of college and trained them to be growth marketers uh, over the last 10 years.
0: Wow, and and that's something that's also really cool. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit about your approach to talent because you have experience having scaled your own company before. And now you're obviously getting back into it and doing it again. But I mean, one of the things that we found, like when we first started building Seated, was the fact that like we could find smart people who maybe didn't have like all the traditional check marks and we could train them really well. And like some of our best performers on growth on CX on a lot of these different teams, they were people that we like, I, I, even one of our one of our like all time best people, she was like literally working in Chipotle, and we found her, and she like applied to us through Indeed, and like became like started running like CX and was like absolutely crushing it. But so I just always think it's really funny that um, you're able to like scale this up. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit more about like what, who are the people you're hiring, what were you training them, what were they doing, and then where did they go on to, um, you know, what kind of work did they go on? To yeah, find? yeah.
1: I mean, you know, we. I, in general, we were very similar, right? And I would say there's this two-by-two two matrix. There's like kind of like smart uh, and sort of like go-getter on one side, and on the other side is experienced. And, you know, people in some ways, not, not in a crude way, but are, are could be like stocks, like people who are really smart and really experienced, they are sort of discovered already, right? And, and it's really hard for early stage, especially at, at that time we were unproven to attract those kinds of people then it's like pretty easy to ex- attract the experienced, not, you know, not go-getters. And they're actually dangerous because they can talk the talk and, 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 you know, everyone has hiring mistakes they've made. Um, and of course you don't want the people who are, who are neither, you know, but then there's this category of, of like go-getter, but not experienced. And, and that was really, we built the business around that category. And I'd say in general, we went after the top 25 universities, hired a lot of people out of, out of undergrad, we also went and found ex bankers, ex consultants. I think the most interesting, uh, the guy who's the CEO of Ampush right now, and then another guy who runs growth at DoorDash, both of them, this was like a, a, we had a couple other people through the years that came from this background, is they were professional poker players. Um, so I'll talk like specifically, like Trevor, Trevor Reeder was, uh, you know, went to Georgetown and then was so good at poker that he ended up playing poker professionally for four or five years. And then eventually that didn't work out. And, uh, I mean, he made enough money, but, but he was looking for a real, real job and he came to Ampush and he immediately understood growth and paid media, he he just got it right. His brain just worked that way already, but then he's a creative guy. He'd come up with stuff. He built some of the biggest relationships we had and he worked for Ampush for five years and, uh, and now he runs growth at DoorDash and he was super early. He was pre IPO to DoorDash. So he's done really well. And I'm like that, you know, those are the things I'm really proud of. And, And John, our CEO. You know, he worked, he went to NYU Law School, worked at Kirkland Ellis, this really fancy law firm. So he had the, kind of the pedigree, but then he literally played poker professionally for three or four years. Um, and then he literally, he came in and he worked, he's worked at Ampush 11 years. So he started as an analyst buying ads and now he's the CEO of the company. So, so that you know, that's probably the most creative version, but we were always in the market for people who seemed to, you know, how to assess risk, like, like to experiment, trying different things. And then we'd, we'd hire kids out of college who had that entrepreneurial bent um, who were analytical and quantitative and, and most of the training, I'd say, you know, we had a pretty formal training program early on to get you the basics. Um, but there's a lot of apprenticeship modeling and a lot of career development. And so it became very clear in your first year, you know, we wanted you first, say 12 to 18 months, become a, a, analytical expert and become a T-shaped growth marketer. Find one area where you're going to really go deep in and understand it and then make sure you understand everything else at a high level that would get you promoted to then taking a little bit of like project management, a little bit of like interacting with people, um, making sure then you get promoted one level up where you're the quarterback of everything you have to, you know, and then you basically be the the business owner after that. So the director would be kind of, you'd have a PNL you'd be responsible for, but, um, so we were very, very intentional about making it a school, like a school of growth marketers, really. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. And wh- one thing I'd also love to touch on a little bit is because you have so much experience in the discipline of not only building Ampush and, you know, starting your own brand, I'd love to just chat a little bit about, um, you know, what's the... what what's the current landscape in um performance right now like how are you thinking about that what are some of the opportunities that you think about because i know over time more and more companies have come into platforms like you know facebook and tiktok and like you know they all all these ad, ad budgets have gone digital so as a performance marketer what are some of the channels that you know are table stakes for you and then what are some of the other channels in performance that you that get you really excited
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's some kind of like staples and I think frankly, the staples tend to be underinvested in. Um, the two most common ones that I think are really places I, I start or have started when we launched a brand is uh, email and affiliate. Right. And I just think that like one of, one of my former employees, she's the CMO of Hone Health. Uh, it's, a, it's a testosterone subscription. And she she's very blunt and she characterized it as follows. You know, I'm a testosterone subscription. I'm not your friend. Why are you on my email list unless you're going to buy from me? So her policy is like you're either buying or getting off my email list. Like I don't, I don't want you in between, um, which is different if you're a multi skewer that you know. But but like I love that perspective, which is like she's not afraid to hammer people with emails. And I just think there's just a lot of juice in that, uh, you know, in that orange that people still like under squeeze. And then affiliate, you know, affiliate is just a lot of labor and and, and elbow grease, and so people under chronically underinvest in it. It's it's risk you know risk free. It's like kind of it's an agreement with another party. It doesn't really take a lot of effort itself to generate once you make the relationships. And I just think it's an area that like I chronically see uh, people in performance marketing under investing in and, and always have and always will to some degree. Um, so that, that's that's that. I think <clears throat> I think frankly the most underrated channel right now is Facebook, which I can tell you more about. And I think the most excited channel out there is is TikTok. Like I, I think TikTok is going to be a gargantuan channel.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk real quick. So you were talking about affiliate, right? What stage do you think um, <clears throat> makes sense for brands to really be thinking about that? Is that something where you know out of the gates you want to be thinking about, or maybe after you've got you know your real like product market fit, you know how your products performing, then you want to start thinking about building out your affiliate strategy.
1: I think, I think I think affiliate and email are day one strategies because you get someone else to send you traffic for free, right? So even if you don't have product, I mean, of course, they're not going to like it. But And I, and I, by the way, I think affiliate, you can treat it like they're early customers if you're a brand, right? You call them, you build a relationship with them. Hey, this is, I'm Jesse. I'm trying to sell a new type of iPhone charger. Here's why I think it's a winner. I'd love for you to place it on there. But, you know, look, I'm early. i like... People, it's funny how much people hide that in the early days. And I've, in my experience in my career, even as an experienced entrepreneur, I've found that sharing that truth and that vulnerability, people want to take a bet on you, you know. And, and so that's what I would do as an affiliate or as an early, you know, early. I would definitely do an email, of course, is like not only am I getting traffic for free, now I can get the person's email and I can email them. Like to me, build, build that to be like a, a baseline profitable business before you invest in anything else. And, and it takes one human to do that. These days with Shopify and, and kind of the supply chain. So in, in theory, anyone can do that.
0: No, I, I love that. And then moving forward, um, you know, one interesting one you mentioned was Facebook. So what do you, yeah. What, what do you think about Facebook? Cause I know maybe it's, is it a different demographic that you have to be thinking about or just in general, people are still hanging on, on Facebook. Like, how do you think about that as an ad platform or do you mean it in terms of, um, you know, Instagram or whatever?
1: No, I think I think Facebook, Instagram ads. I mean, look, I, uh, there's a couple of things to remember uh, when we zoom out. Number one is Facebook is a $100 billion revenue business, which means every morning a bunch of people wake up and they decide to spend a certain amount of money in an aggregate that is a $100 billion business. It, even if we assume, let's say, it's flat from last year, so it's not growing as fast, it's literally bigger than it's ever been, right? Like uh, when I started Ampush, it was less than a billion, even like 2015, 2016, when we had a liquidity event, I look back recently, it was $24 billion. Like it, it became four times the size and like after we had sold, you know. Uh, so it, it, it's a big, there's a lot of money being spent there. And there's a reason for that, right? It, it works. So that's number one. Number two is, is like, let's remember, CPM is not a number that Facebook determines. The amount of people on Twitter or I hear whining about, oh, Facebook CPMs are up. This thing is, a, there's an auction running. And a bunch of advertisers are bidding on that auction. And based on what the results of that, that auction are, Facebook, determined, the price is determined by essentially the marketplace. It's my number one piece of advice for, for C entrepreneurs or even CMOs at bigger companies, is when you complain about your CPA relative to your CPM, all you're saying is that I'm not a very good marketer. And you go, well, what do you mean by that? I was like, well, other people are, 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 are somehow making their business work for a $20 CPM It's your job as the marketer to figure out the click-through rate and conversion rate needed to be able to compete in the market because somebody else is willing to pay $20. Um, And so that was like a big focus as we built Ampush for a lot of brands was how do you improve that CTR and and conversion in a way that's not just today but continuous. Because because the whole market's going to get smarter and more sophisticated. There's these creative players. There's other things. So you as, as a brand have to keep beating that. Essentially, you have to grow your CTR and, and conversion at a faster rate than the market CPM goes up. Other, and that's the only way to keep your CPA from from jumping, right? And so, so that's the other big thing, which is. And so, I, I think I mean, those are all you know a lot of jargon and stuff there. But I think the end of the, the point is, it's still a big pond to fish in. The, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, certainly for demand gen. And but the way to fish, you you got to get better at it. You got to be you, thinking about more creative concepts. You have to have better hooks. Your landing pages have to be more compelling, you know. You got to really market your product and market your your what you're selling effectively. Um, and I think a lot of that is creative landing page, but a lot of it is also getting it ahead of your customer and understanding their pain points and challenges and why they might want your product. Uh, but it's yeah, it's certainly not as easy as it was, uh, you know, in 2016 or 2017. It's
0: harder, but but that doesn't mean there's not an opportunity. And so. then moving to Kahani, is that kind of where you started to see some opportunities saying like, if, you know, if part of this equation is getting conversion up, getting, obviously you need to have like great ads to be able to click through and you're coming from all these different platforms. Were you kind of thinking of it in terms of like now the backend experience, now what happens, what can we do and what's the service that we can provide to help lift that conversion?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, you know, obviously we weren't sure if it would convert better when we first launched it. I, mean, I thought it might because, it, you know, that experience works. And and we said, well, who's good at engaging people, Instagram and TikTok? <laughs> so what if the e-com experience was redesigned in that way? But yeah, I, I think that the part of the reason conversion rates are 2% or 3% on mobile is because the answer today is I look at a video, then I go to this like shrunken down desktop website. And, you know, people, the way people drive you in is like long form landing pages where you read a lot or a quiz or something interactive. Now Matt, like why, you know, meanwhile, some people sit on Tinder and they swipe all day long with that interaction feature. Why is that not the way we're shopping? And so I think, yeah, I think our our idea is to really build a bunch of these tools and form factors that we think will ultimately convert higher. It's like convert more customers, but also get customers to buy more, which is also one of the most important pieces of of, of like profitability for a retailer. Uh, so we're thinking about all those things and, and we're learning as we go by the way one of the weird things for me about this business has been as we build the software we then have to like get it on people's sites to see what it's going to do and how it works so we we're gr- grateful to lots of customers who are willing to like work with us and let us figure that
0: out so one question i also had was so you you did the ampush thing you got you kind of transitioned away in like 2020 or so. Um, why don't you walk me through a little bit of your thought process? I know that part of it was like you building out your own brands to kind of come to this conclusion. So why don't you t- talk to us a little bit about what it was like getting back in the saddle after having like started your business and, you know, trying to create a new business in, in the e-com space. What was that like?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I kind of transitioned out of Ampush in 2020 took some time off. I relocated my family, actually back to St. Louis, my hometown. Um, and, I, and I was just like, what do I want to do next? And, and I, you know, grateful and lucky. I have people say, hey, why don't you go roll up a bunch of Shopify stores, uh, buy a bunch of Shopify stores, right? You know, so a lot of friends were like, SaaS, you've got to figure out a SaaS idea, Jesse, like, you could sell, the you know, companies and and that's what you should do. Uh And, you know, what I actually did in early 21, before I had gotten anything going, was I said, the only way I'm going to know this is I'm going to try to do some of this stuff. And so I actually went and I talked to 25 small e-com businesses. Um, I was like, should I buy them? You know, I know how to do growth marketing. Okay, what do you do? Tell me about your problems, whatever. The other thing I did was I I was like, I kind of want to launch an e-com brand. Like, I just, I want to learn. I want to get my hands dirty. And you know, the SaaS thing, I didn't, I tried to force it and I didn't want to because the the ideas like they just weren't getting me excited. I wasn't feeling excited about these ideas. And there's plenty of ideas. I just wasn't feeling that excited. And it's something I've spent a lot of time learning to both first, like know what I feel excited about and not just chase everything. And then also, okay, cool. Then I'm going to like follow that thing I feel excited about. And so, you know, after talking with 20 or 25 entrepreneurs, like I think rolling up Shopify or whatever is a, is a great idea. Like it's a good business idea. It, it didn't like, I did not feel excited about uh, the idea and the way I've described it to people for myself is if you talk to me about my dream home or my house I want to live in, I would never buy somebody else's house and renovate it and and change the drapes. I just wouldn't do that. I would go to a, you know, a, an architect and I'd tell Give me a blank piece of paper. Let's draw some blueprints, right? And so it was actually helpful for me kind of in my second act of like, oh, no, I'm an entrepreneur. Like I like to build things from scratch. And that was just a helpful learning for myself. And then, yeah, on the e side, I started launching something. And I think it was just fun. It was fun how fast you could go. It was fun how you like everything was kind of self-serve. Um, but as we talked about just a second ago, like it's harder than ever, I think, to launch an e store. The big guys are struggling. Small guys are harder to launch. And I kind of lived that. And I thought here I was this guy who had done all this growth marketing stuff. And the first brand didn't even make it off the launch pad because like Facebook was actually was really challenging. And, and the funny story, by the way, there was like, I, uh, you know, Facebook forces you to start off at a hundred bucks a day or 50 bucks a day or something. And I have all these friends at Facebook. So like I call in a favor. I'm like, I don't guys, it's me. It's Jesse Pucci. I don't need this. Like get rid of the daily limit. they're like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. So like, okay, Jesse, I got, you. you can spend as much as you want. And so like Labor Day weekend of 2011, I remember Memorial Day weekend. I'm like, yeah, we're going to spend 2000 bucks a day with this like amazing GIFs. And like, I'm going to run the Ampush playbook here. And it was, I literally spent five grand and maybe got two conversions. And I was like, holy shit. Like, and then I talked to someone, you know, a friend of mine, Nick Sharma. And he's like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm like, I thought i know how to do growth marketing. I'm the man. And he's like, he's like, yeah, you know how to do it for like $25 million businesses. When you're first starting, you got to spend very little. You got to let Facebook learn who your customers are. You got to like season this pixel. That's what they call it. And um, it was a very humbling moment. You know, I was like, oh shit. Like, you know, cause he's like, they don't know who your customers are. It doesn't matter how good your ads are, what you're spending yet. And so, you know, but I was back in the game, which I think was the fun part. And then from there, you're like, okay, we are installing the quiz software and we're installing, you know, we're installing these themes and we're just trying to like, you know, I'm I'm seeing this market and how it works. And and that's kind of what got my wheels turning on what could be an interesting idea here. Uh, And I did like immediately, I was like, I remember when they first showed me the first version of the site, I was like, God, is there nothing more interesting than this? Like this seems so aged. And and they're like, no, there's nothing. Here's one theme that lands a picture. And I was like, really? And that's kind of when the the Kahani thing hit me. Uh, It was like the summer of 21.
0: Yeah and I think that's it's so it's such an important part because that's such a big part of entrepreneurship in general right it's like a lot of times the best builders are the people who are like solving their own problems and you kind of had to you had to like build in the space yourself and then everything kind of became clear you understood how all the pieces fit together and you weren't just like speculating being like oh this is a SAS that I should build because it makes sense in my head you actually experienced the the problem and then you were able to to build off of that um so then what were the ne- what were the next steps right like you you're you're, you're building this company you've <laughs> you figured out how to kind of start growing uh, an e-com brand maybe from the ground up, which is obviously different than when you're running like major, major ad budgets. But what were, um, you know, how how did you get started building Kahani and and what were the first steps there?
1: Yeah. You know, it, I had started kind of this this thing I was calling Gateway X, which is sort of the venture studio and, and still figuring out it as I go. And so we were building a brand and, and honestly, like at first Kahani, like, so what we would do for every there's this thing, if you Google Sequoia business plan, Sequoia has this like 10 categories for outlining a business plan. So we had just thrown that in like a notion doc. And anytime someone had a good idea, we would just write it up. So I just wrote, I sat down, and I wrote it up. I'm like, why? you know, who, what's the problem this solves? Okay. Engagement, conversion, they're super hard for e-com on mobile. What's the solution? Why is the solution different? Why now? How big is the market? Like I literally just outlined it and I just literally put it on a shelf um and and because it was like i can't i'm not a developer so i can't build it and uh and then i got lucky you know that's like the next part of the story which is like a a company i've invested in a close friend of mine david raby he pings me literally out of the blue going my first developer who's the man who's you know can get anything done he's looking and it seems like what you're doing at gateway x with the studio thing could be really interesting and then kind of like the rest was history as soon as adam joined and then adam you know he's a He's not only a unique builder, but he's a he's a very unique uh, business and product guy. Like he he really understands things at a level that I've never seen someone uh, who's a developer do before. So I just got lucky. I mean, there's that's a huge part of I mean, that's a huge part of every story, right?
0: Yeah, of course. And and team is so important, and having. Complementary skill sets and being able to start building building something out together is is very important. So then, once you guys have the idea, you have a develop you have a developer partner that you want. Then, what are the next steps in terms of like setting the roadmap? Like, did you you had the idea for the product pretty much ready to go because you've experienced it? How did you get your first yeah, couple yeah. customers? I, like like I have this you, idea. You, but you know, I'm,
1: one of the hallmarks of the way I like to build things is back to the video game analogy, like. You, you never want to eat your own, you know, uh, BS when you're building a business. And everyone does to some extent. But if you start doing it, then you stop seeing reality clearly. So so it was like, okay, well, what let's think of this as stage gates. like So the first stage gate was we were like, what, will people even engage with this module? And so, you know, before we spend all this money building out this product, let's just literally make like a HTML and CSS like circle thing. And I think there's, you know, some people built, that like links to other parts of the site. And, you know, internally we call them waypoints, but you can call them stage gates. And it's like, okay, to beat level one, it, it, if we, to beat level one, we want to see an engagement rate of like 10% with this thing. We want to see that it actually like can lead, we can move traffic around in smart ways. We're going to put this, we put this on the site, the the supplement site we had launched. And then we also got a couple of friends, small companies who threw it on their site. And we're like, you know, it took us, by the way, six weeks to build. It took Adam six weeks to build. That it was very fast, right? And we were blown away. Like, it got engagement. If there was a hero product, it tended to drive a lot more traffic to the hero product. And, and we were like, ooh, okay, this is exciting. Like, we've seen something that it, it actually has an impact. And then we said, okay, let's build the rest of it. And so from, you know, November to February, we built kind of, a, a ver, you know, the first version of it. And we didn't have any CMS, any backend, we literally would say, like, send us your media files, we upload them on a JSON file. You know, we wrote a thread on Twitter, got a bunch of people to be the customers, uh, to be our private beta customers. And we charged them, by the way, importantly, we didn't charge anyone for the menu, but you don't, you know, lots of people will do me favors. And that's actually what I want. I want to see that they're going to pay me money and, and, or not, you know, and, and that's a very valuable data point as an entrepreneur. Uh, and so then we got on a bunch of sites and we had no idea what to expect. Um, and I'd say, well, there were three things that got us really excited at that point. I'd say... Number one is we probably uh, talked with 50 or so brands and every single one of them said, yes, my site, like it looks old, I don't know how to fix it, you know, it's stuck in this format and I want something that's gonna make it look more interesting. Uh, So that was awesome. The the second thing was, you know, we saw that um, when it started to work well for people, they would make it a part of their website. Like it was just part of their workflow and we're like, ooh, that's awesome. If you can get them to that level, uh, and then the third thing was it started to perform. It wasn't, it didn't perform for hundred percent of sites, hundred, you know, on day one, but as it started to perform, we started to see more specific use cases come through. So the two and the way I describe it is like, we have two that we feel like we can see very clearly in a lens. And then we have probably like three or five that are like very blurry in the lens, but we think we'll, we'll see them clearly at some point. And the first two, number one, the most interesting one was when we put it on fashion or multi-skew websites, you know, it's a fun and engaging shopping experience and people will look at more SKUs during a session than they otherwise would and they'll see more things faster and then they they frankly buy more stuff. It's kind of intuitive. So that was one use case that just immediately we saw people adding more to the cart, more AOV. And then the second one was was for like kind of a confusing product or a hard to understand or expensive product where the bar is higher and people are kind of, they have their objections people engage a lot with Kahani because it's like this interesting thing they know what to do with it. And so if they could tell the story or explain um, what it does or how it does that with Kahani, then we started to see conversion jump for those sites. So for example, there's a business called Hallie Hair, who's a great customer and their big challenge, it's a, it's a hair dye. And so people would come in and they would get to about to buy it. They go, I don't know what is going to look like on my hair. And so at the top of Kahani, it says for dark hair, for light hair, they tap it and they could see stories that show the hair colors and and we saw conversion rate jump up pretty meaningfully on the PDP, like in the double digits. Um, so yeah, so there's, it was a really exciting process, but, and then we, when we spent the whole summer building the backend CMS because, because the biggest complaint was what the hell do I, guys, I need to change things. <laughs> right. And now yeah, we've launched the open beta, which now has the backend CMS. We're building more automation tools in where we can look at your, uh, your entire product catalog and actually develop the stories, for you. So suggested Kahani is essentially, and so we're going to keep building that, but that's how we built. We built as little as we needed to, to get to the next level. Um, That was always how we built, uh, you know, to kind of validate the next data point that we we were going against.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's so important when you're building any sort of business is to understand what are like the different like what's the MVP of it at that stage and how do you get there and understanding how to like set those up, right? Because I think it can be really easy to say like, oh, we're going to build, 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 build. And you know, it's, you're making an unrealistic investment without being able to assess if there's traction. I think the other really important thing you mentioned was like, let's get our customers to pay or not pay, but like, let's just, because that's the only way you're really going to know. And I think that's something that I think about a lot. It's like, if you're When you're building a business you want to see if not just people that like it because they're doing you a favor but like because they actually need it and that's how you know that there's a broader market so having those um you know having that in your mind as you're building i think is really important for any service that you're doing not just Not just this this also applies to like d2c products too right you want to make sure that people genuinely want to buy it not just because they're like hey man yeah i'll buy your thing but like because they actually need it and because it solves a need the other thing that i I think you know this but like
1: one of the one of the you know entrepreneurship is incredibly scary it's a really really scary thing to put all your time and your whole life into one thing and so you know and i do this everyone does it but like entrepreneurs are very good at lying to themselves um, it's just a, it's a common trait in the, in the industry. <laughs> it's like, I kind of want to put myself out there, but then I'm going to do these small things that are going to make me not quite put myself out there. Like I'm not going to charge anyone, you know, just give the product away for free. That'll, that'll get people to do things. And so, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that's a big, a big area to be concerned of. And the other, other thing you said that I totally agree with, and it's the number one advice. Someone's like, someone the other day was like, I want to start a you know, wealth management for millennials and it's going to be an app and like they had this huge game plan or it's like financial planners and, and I was like, oh, cool. Why don't you start a newsletter for those millennials telling them about financial advice and like see if you can get 10,000 people to sign up for your newsletter and and then like they'll talk and they're like, oh my God, that's so hard. I'm like, so if you can't get people to give you their email and don't charge them anything, like just realize how hard it is to, to get anything to kind of go and get in and scale.
0: Yeah, and, and that the best part about that is like, like you said, it could be a, the newsletter example that you just used, but like for every business that you're building, there is an MVP, um, of it that you can like prove traction. And in certain cases, yeah, you're going to actually have to go build to the next stage to see if that's the thing that people want to go pay for. But you know, whether you're building a, a SaaS, a consumer product, uh, an app, like there's just different ways to test out that the, the demand will, will be there. And, and I think that's, And the other thing that you mentioned that I think is really important was that idea about like being vulnerable and being honest with yourself and not lying to yourself. This is something that I've seen with like a lot of fellow founders. And I think a lot of it also has to do with like the funding environment with different VCs. And like, so as a founder, right, like you don't want to put all your cards on the table because you're thinking about like how you might go raise your next VC round. But sometimes that that like same logic starts to affect your own business. Because then you start either buying into the BS or not wanting to actually be vulnerable and be like just straight up with yourself and what you're seeing. So um, I think that's always an interesting thing because like a lot of founders get kind of wrapped up and they're thinking about like, oh, I need to be able to tell the public this. I need to be able to tell the VC this. Our numbers need to look like this. And through that, they get lost with their their own path.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's spot on. I, I think there's, the reasons you come up with that you're doing something a simple test for me, by the way, is like, if it's not my customers and it's not my employees, those are the two Those are the two sort of people I serve, groups I serve, right? Um, and maybe suppliers and stuff, depending on your business or whatever. But but like, if it's not, if this, like, then starting to say, like, I have to do this for this group. Like, every time you do that, it's going to pull you off mission and pull you off target. But you're right. If people say, oh, no, I have to do this because PR requires that I do this or... Investors need that I do this or whatever. And, and you can just really tie yourself up in knots uh, and people do it all the time.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's ironic too, because like the more kind of vulnerable and true you can be with yourself and with all those parties, like those are, those tend to be the businesses that start with like a really strong foundation and can kind of grow out and tap into the other opportunities from there. Um, and then the other thing that you had mentioned that I think is a really cool actually opportunity for a lot of these commerce brands is that example you gave between the dark hair and the light hair, right. And being able to use your product to do that. I think, um, yes, well, many DTC products are the same. Each one has its own customer. It has a different thing and everyone kind of has like something they're trying to solve for in some way they're trying to communicate with a specific buyer, right? Like, so in the case, if it's a hair product, it's like, okay, well, what color is your hair? If it's a supplements product, it's like, okay, well, you know, what, what's your diet? Like if it's a, physical product. It's like, what's your body shape like, right? So anything that you're selling kind of has all these different personas. And if you can't quickly tap into and personalize for that persona, you're going to have a harder time converting because you're not being specific, right? So I think that that's a really cool opportunity to be able to tap into with Kahani.
1: Yeah. And, and it's I think it's now just a natural way people take in information on their mobile devices, right? They, they have a thing, they like tap and they want to watch the, uh, they, they, they don't want to scroll. They don't want to, you know, even just like what crazy one that came up as we're thinking about the vision is like it, filtering on a mobile website for, for lots of different products is sort of insane. Like you got to click this X thing, you got to add things on your mobile phone. It's just, it seems nuts, right? It's almost like you want to talk to it and just say filter for red size 12 shoes. And then it shows you all, you know, it, it's crazy to me that, just how behind the ecom mobile UI UX is.
0: That's, that sounds like something you can integrate down the line. It sounds like it'll I know, line up. Right? right? <laughs> Don't forget filtering. that one. Right? Um, no, that's super cool. And then the other thing I kind of wanted to talk about um, is. So you obviously went about like building things the right way for Kahani, getting your different levels of uh, acceptable MVP done before you move to the next stage. But how did you think about like capitalizing the business as like an early stage, you know, SaaS founder? How did you go about it? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, I'm lucky early on I I could kind of fund some of this stuff myself, you know, and, and GatewayX, I had built it and I had some investors at GatewayX and GatewayX is kind of a venture studio. So we had enough, but we still, you know, we got to the point of, I'd say, validating demand and sort of with it with less than $300,000. Um, you know, and that was me paying salaries to people, essentially not paying myself. Um, and again, I'm lucky. Like I, I actually didn't pay myself at the beginning of Ampush. I'm not paying myself now, um, but like paying enough to, get, to kind of get the thing off the ground and validate that it works. Uh, and that's where like, to me, that's where urgency comes in. You want to move fast. You want to make, cause you can't, you know, the, the, the kind of the, The meter's running in the taxi, right? (laughs) And so, I think you you want to get going and figure out if there's going to be a there there or not, or putting money against something else. And and startup founders are are really capital allocators. They do a lot of deciding where things get spent to to generate a return, which is uh, kind of the core of capital allocation. So yeah, we we try to keep it scrappy. We try to get off the ground. You know, I did think about bootstrapping it, um, especially once we launched in February, because you know we. We, we quickly, I think within a month and a half, we're at 10K in MRR. We, we probably could have gone harder and faster. But one of the things like we saw for the product was it had to be easy enough so someone could find the value quickly. And and I think one thing that was lucky in this case was I was like, well, yeah, the product wasn't there yet. There was no CMS when we launched. And I didn't want it to turn into a services business. Um, I wanted it to be a, a software and product business. And so over the summer, I actually decided that we'd go out and raise... Uh, raise our seed round for it because really getting the right product and engineering team around building this was important. And uh, so in my case, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's how we're thinking about capitalizing it um, wanting to kind of raise enough money. And, And I think, I still think you can raise that amount. Like there's a certain amount you can raise where you still have a lot of flexibility with how you build the business. And I think that's an important thing entrepreneurs should keep in mind is not every business will become a billion dollar business and that's okay. Um, and sure, I'd love for this to become a billion dollar business, but I also don't want to, I want to maintain flexibility with how we grow and scale it.
0: Yeah. And that's the other thing that we see a lot of. Uh, it's just like founders that may overcapitalize their businesses just because like they don't understand what the opportunity and what the ceiling is. So like in the early stage, it doesn't matter as much, but like w- down the line, there are certain businesses that have lower ceilings and others. And that's just a fact. And they shouldn't, if you capitalize them the wrong way, you're going to be in trouble. So I think just having that ethos of like, okay, let's, how can we do this in the scrappiest way possible while still not like, but while still being time efficient as well. So like using capital to like, you're saying buy time, if we know this needs to be, um, a product that we need to build and code. And it, and that's going to, what's going to be the next driver of our business. Like, let's not like wait forever till we do this. Cause we already see the traction here. Um, so let's invest in that. Right. But even we, like,
1: even if we raise a few million bucks for Kahani, we're still going to focus on getting kind of a PNL break even in the next year. Cause, cause that, you know, the other thing that's nice about bootstrapping is it really makes it hard for you to lie to yourself. You know, if, if, if we can't, if we can't get to break even in the next 12 to 15 months, we we might not have product market fit because we don't have enough revenue to offset which frankly a low low expenses in the grand scheme of things right even if the company say spends fifty to seventy five thousand dollars a month if we can't get that's only I'm only describing, let's say we charge a customer five hundred bucks that's only a hundred customers if we can't get hundred customers to buy this as it stands today then maybe the, maybe that idea is not that good so I think one that's the nice thing about bootstrapping is you can't lie it's harder to lie to yourself because <laughs> you gotta you got to pay the bills. Right. And I think it's much easier when you're raising money to to lie to yourself.
0: No, that's, that's so true. And before we wrap up here, a couple last things I kind of want to talk about is just like the evolution of commerce in general, it seems like there's been so many different um, apps and experiences that like different companies have tried to like really tap into to like, uh, to really help out these people who are operating commerce businesses, but like, where do you see commerce headed beyond what you guys are building in Kahani? Like, what are some of the trends and things that you're, you're really excited for in the future of commerce?
1: Yeah. You know, w- when I worked at Goldman, one of the most valuable things I learned was how short-term oriented people are and markets are. Um, and like most of the best long-term investors, like, you know, the Warren Buffetts, but even there's plenty of others out there. They're really just good at thinking beyond a few quarters. And most and that's like that's true for most entrepreneurs as well, and it's pretty crazy when you see what's happening right now. Like during COVID, you know, e-com penetration I think was at fourteen percent or something like that, and it like it went like this. It went vertical, you know, and and it, oh my god, in every market cap, everyone was like, oh my god, th- these are all huge companies, and then and it was all because of COVID, and everyone knew it too, which is the most weird part about it, right? And then, and then COVID stopped, and everyone was like, "I want to go travel." And it was like, and now that that line's gone horizontal. But funny enough, it's like basically going back to the the same exact linear trend that every the chart everyone's seen of. And and yet, like, like the big fact isn't the big fact. econ penetration is not even twenty percent of our economy yet. Which, like, I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast, anyone in our world, goes, "What? What do you mean? That means only one in five transactions for stuff happens online." Um, so first of all, I just think it's early. I think we're in the second or third inning of all of this. And I think you know there's, there's gonna be a lot of things that change in the future um, for how things go forward. I, I think I was just talking to one of my colleagues today and saying, like, you know the small business small business has always driven in the United States. And the last you know small businesses were maybe steel mills or random boutiques in a, in a shopping mall or uh, a nail salon. Like those are all great, by the way, and they drove the last thirty years of commerce maybe prior to the internet, or maybe from nineteen seventy to two thousand or something. But the next big wave are gonna be small businesses are gonna be the ecom like they're gonna or like things like ecom and small things online, and I think people just underestimate there's a lot of a huge chunk of the economy that's willing to make a hundred thousand to a million dollars a year, which is typically what a small business makes forever based on running their boutique online and I, I think there's gonna be millions more stores coming online in the coming years, essentially. So I, I just think we're early and there's a lot more gonna, that's going to happen, especially via kind of small businesses versus, versus startups. Um, you know, obviously I think, I think the, the nature with which the, how we engage with e-commerce is going to change a lot. You know, I think there's going to be discovery. One of the crazy ideas we have for Kahani in the future is like, if we could figure out what everyone's doing, how could we connect stores with each other like could you look at the kahani kind of like an instagram story ad and go to another site you know or are, are there ways to kind of aggregate like we a super crazy idea we had is like a discovery app like we'll know which stories are getting the most engagement what if we had a third party app where you could just go and look at those stories yourself and then like go shopping and all of a sudden we have discovery as a part of kahani so like i think there's there's a lot more weird crazy stuff that's going to happen um, in e-com. And, and I think it will be volatile and it's a little barren right now, but I think that's just a short-term orientation.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that stuff will be re- really exciting. And I mean, it's it, going back to your roots, it kind of solves for the acquisition problem um, that you were talking about with uh, with people who are thinking about performance and different new innovative ways to like reach customers that have like really high intent, um, so I think that'll be really exciting. Really excited to see where you guys continue to go with uh, Kahani. So for our listeners and anyone who's tuning in, where can um, you know where can they check out Kahani? Where can they try it out? I know you mentioned yeah, yeah. sure you guys so that just Kahani opened up app. the beta.
1: Yeah, we just opened it up today. The open beta. Ah, uh, the self-serve tools are ready. So kahaniapp.com, k a h a n i, app.com, or uh, the Twitter is app kahani, a p p, k a h a n i, um, and yeah, we've got a waitlist open. You know, we're we're looking for folks who want to build with us and experiment things with us. That's kind of the stage right now, but uh, would love it.
0: Cool. And for any of our listeners, where can they find you online? I know you're pretty big on Twitter. Where's the best p- place to connect with you? Is it there?
1: Yeah, I think Twitter is is jspuji, uh, P-U-J-J-I.
0: And uh, yeah,
1: I'm I'm on Twitter. That's an easy place to find me.
0: Sweet. Well, thanks so much for coming on the pod today. And we look forward to uh, tracking your progress with Kahani.
1: All right. Thanks, Blaine.